Welcome to the NCAST Monthly Regulatory Brief. I'm Aileen McDonough, your host and director of content marketing at NContracts. In this podcast, our compliance team provides an overview and analysis of the latest regulatory changes for financial institutions, along with info on trends to help you keep up with the rapidly evolving nature of compliance. Let's get started. Hello, I am Stephanie Lyon, Vice President of Compliance at Encontracts. Today, I am joined by Robert Grosh and Shelby Montgomery, Regulatory Compliance Counsels at Encontracts. We're going to deliver some of the most valuable regulatory changes that have happened in the month of May. And we're going to start by introducing topics that affect everyone in the industry. We're going to move on to topics affecting depository institutions like banks and credit unions and end with our mortgage companies. On that note, it's not going to surprise anyone that one of our first topics is, of course, having to do with the aftermath of the pandemic, and that is mortgage forbearance. So I'm going to go and let Robert tell you a little bit about that topic. That's right. So the CFPB did release two reports last month highlighting that more work needs to be done to assist borrowers who are struggling because of COVID-19. So the first report highlights that Black and Hispanic mortgage borrowers are much more likely to be delinquent or in a forbearance program than white borrowers. And then in the second report, the CFPB notes that the overall mortgage complaints that it's received uh, has risen to the highest level that they've seen in the past three years. And now I know what you're saying, you know, this information is all well and good. Reports are always a good thing to look at, but what exactly should you take away? And I think the biggest thing right now is that financial institutions need to be working with these borrowers, not against them. And what exactly does that entail? Well, in terms of some sort of practical steps that your institution can take, um, you know, I definitely recommend that you review the method and substance of information conveyed about loss mitigation. Make sure that you're reaching out to consumers before their forbearance uh, period ends. Uh, You know, we shouldn't be contacting consumers um, or mortgage borrowers uh, for the first time after they've already exited forbearance. And then you can also go ahead and review um, the information your institution provides about post-forbearance options. Uh, Because as my colleague Katie mentioned last month, the CFPB explicitly stated that unprepared is unacceptable. Um, And so you wanna really be able to show when examination time comes around, the steps that your institution took uh, to help your mortgage borrowers who are struggling with COVID-19 related hardships. Thank you so much, Robert. And on a related note, we got eviction foreclosures and debt collection issues all happening around from federal level to the states. So Shelby, take us through that journey from evictions to foreclosures and so forth. We have a few updates on some moratoriums. Um, First, let's start with the CDC and their eviction moratorium. Uh, It was initially overturned on May the 5th by a U.S. District Court judge Uh, who, after uh, some reconsideration, agreed to put her ruling on hold until a higher court could could hear the matter. So the eviction moratorium through the CDC remains in effect until June 30th. Um, You probably want to start thinking about, though, June 30th is just right around the corner, what this means for your landlords um, who you may hold a mortgage for, uh, as well as tenants who may be customers of yours. Um, 
Of course, states are also generally involved in these moratoriums. And you all know from last podcast, I enjoy talking about New York. Um, New York is one of the, the few states who has extended both their foreclosure and eviction moratorium. Um, for certain residential tenants, homeowners, and small businesses, uh, it, it extends those through previously enacted laws. Um, and that extension will last until August the 31st. Wonderful. What do we have on the front regarding debt collection and anything else on foreclosures? Yeah, so debt collection and the FDCPA. Um, so now before you listeners, before you zone out, because you are all proficient compliance experts and you know that the FDCPA generally only applies to third parties collecting debts on behalf of financial institutions, I do want to recommend that you listen closely because in May of this year, the House passed the Comprehensive Debt Collection Improvement Act, which clarifies that entities in a non-judicial foreclosure proceeding are covered under the FDCPA. So this actually negates uh, prior unanimous Supreme Court precedent from 2019, um, and it opens up financial institutions who are enforcing security interests to liability under the FDCPA. And so, you know, there are arguments for and against this law. Uh, Congress is largely passing the bill because they believe that it will be an increase to consumer protection, especially regarding non-judicial foreclosure. Uh, but on the other side, there are quite a few cons. So more than half of the states currently have designed their legal system uh, to provide for some sort of non-judicial foreclosure process. You know, it's what a lot of financial institutions are used to. It allows for a speedier process without involvement of the court system. And then in turn, that benefit is then passed down to consumers because there's less of a loss of risk for financial institutions, which allows them to then offer lower interest rates to future borrowers. And then plus, you know, on a purely legal aspect side, um, you know, we'll get into the sticky situation of preemption with state laws that may conflict with this new federal framework. Um, so, you know, it certainly seems like this law may cause a lot more problems um, than it'll fix. So it's certainly one to watch closely in the upcoming months. Thank you, Robert. That is definitely an area where we're definitely seeing a lot of rulemaking legislation. And of course, like you mentioned, court cases. So let's take it back to the CFPB. We have a huge prolonged qualified mortgage rule that's been bouncing around for quite a few years now. Uh, just as a reminder, a qualified mortgage is simply a framework by which uh, financial institutions and other lenders can make loans to borrowers and be protected through a safe harbor that you are making a loan in good faith that a borrower can actually afford and repay through their ability to repay. Um, and we currently utilize something are like a 43% threshold of debt to income. The CFPB under the leadership of Kathy Craninger decided that we were going to go ahead and get rid of some of the qualified mortgages that we had in place. You may have heard of the patch QMB1 that is out there and floating. And this one affects specifically loans that you are wanting to sell or that are going to be guaranteed by Freddie and Fannie, which are our government sponsored entities or GSEs. But once we had a transition in power, meaning Kathy Craninger stepped down and we had a new acting director of the CFPB, 
they decided that because of COVID and all of the pandemic effects on borrowers and financial institutions, the CFPB wanted to give a little bit more leeway and leniency to how you needed to implement this rule. So rather than taking it away completely at once, they were going to give you a little bit more time to go ahead and implement the mandatory compliance deadline. So it was moved from something that would have been around the corner July 1st to now October of 2022. So that is quite a little bit of leniency there provided by the CFPB. And you might be thinking that is phenomenal, but before you go celebrating anything here, unfortunately, Freddie and Fannie issued notices themselves that said that they're going to go ahead and observe the prior mandatory compliance deadline that makes it whereby the patch QM rule is going to go ahead and expire for loans that you're trying to sell to these GSEs. The reason they did this is unfortunately they quoted some obscure contractual language with a federal agency, probably the FHA, and they're saying they're no, not going to be able to accept these loans anymore. So where does that leave you, financial institutions and mortgage companies originating residential loans under the QM rule? Well, now you have a federal a rule that allows you to comply much later, but you have contractual standards with the GSEs that will not permit that. So if you are uh, utilizing the patch QM rule, you're going to want to revisit that and you're going to want to observe the, the prior mandatory compliance date that's coming up July 1st if you're gonna provide those loans to the GSEs. Hopefully we'll see some kind of framework that admits that there's something wrong here, but unless we see something really, really soon, you're not gonna be able to give those GSD patch loans to Freddie and Fannie. So make sure you're ready to go, ready to comply with the new QM rule. I'm gonna go ahead and pass it on to something we've talked a little bit about last week, which is climate risk. Robert, what do you have on climate risk? That's right. Climate risk, the hot topic of 2021. But um, it's uh, no secret that President Biden is a huge proponent of combating climate change. And as the U.S. works towards achieving um, that net zero emissions goal that he set, uh, he did sign an executive order last month to understand the climate-related financial risk associated with moving towards you know, that cleaner energy. So the EO, that executive order, does call upon financial regulators to take steps to measure and mitigate climate-related financial risks. Uh, specifically, it calls upon Treasury Secretary Yellen to work with members of the Financial Stability Oversight Council uh, to assess the transitional and physical risks uh, and the effect on the financial stability of uh, on the financial stability of the federal government and the U.S. financial system as a whole. And so while the EO doesn't have a direct immediate impact on federally regulated financial institutions, you know, it does uh, impact the, their regulators by requiring them to take steps to ensure, um, like I said, the measurement and mitigation of climate-related risks, uh, such as gathering its uh, gathering information from their institutions and also sharing information amongst the agencies themselves. And then in addition, the Treasury has to uh, issue a report within 180 days um, on the efforts taken by the agencies to incorporate 
climate-related financial risk into their policies and programs, as well as any sort of regulatory recommendations they may have. Uh, so I would certainly expect within the upcoming months to see some sort of proposals uh, for our FIs and our and for our financial institutions um, in terms of climate risk. So what can you do? I'd recommend you know going ahead and starting to assess your risks by taking account the products and services that you offer to entities with higher carbon footprints or that are directly and heavily involved um, in the climate, with the climate. It'll be interesting to see, Robert, if we get some discrimination lawsuits arising out of some of these activities. But Shelby, where can a financial institution learn more about climate risk and what's going on maybe with the states? So the states are getting on board um, with, with these climate risk type uh, guidances and, and providing more information. We talked a little bit um, last month about New York and the guidance that they had issued. Um, they are now producing webinars um, available on the New York Department of Financial Services website uh, related to climate change. They hosted two in May on the physical risk related to climate change, and there's one that's coming up on June the 10th that uh, is related to clean energy financing. All of these webinars have been recorded, so if you're interested in learning more about it, go to the Department of Financial Services website and check out those webinars. Um, my other favorite state out there, California, uh, also jumping on this climate risk bandwagon, they did consider a bill uh, in this legislative session on climate financial risk. They ended up making it a two-year bill, meaning it won't move forward this year, uh, but will be reconsidered next year. So I wouldn't count it out yet, but that bill is going to require banks, credit unions, and mortgage lenders to file an annual report on climate financial risk. So be on the lookout for that one. Um, Hopefully more information will be coming. Perfect, Shelby. Yes, it's always California or New York, right? <laughs> All yes. right. We're going to move on to a major risk, and that is a risk that you can't turn your TV on or read the news without hearing about, and that is cyber risk. Cyber risk has been on the rise significantly, and just lately the, the headlines have been Capital Pipe. It was disrupted, they had to shut down. They were a major provider of fuel across the East Coast and to some major airports. That was incredibly disruptive, a little bit scary for folks that live down there. We also saw solar winds, which was utilized as a backdoor to their clients. And their clients are pretty notable. It's the federal government, as well as Fortune 500 companies and they were utilized solar wind to go ahead and breach some of those areas. And we're still seeing the aftermath of the solar wind breach because we just heard that Russia or a Russian group had hacked State Department emails and has stolen thousands of communications in the State Department. So what does that have to do with financial institutions? Well, Financial institutions are heavily targeted by these hackers and these groups. We know that DarkSide recently targeted small community-sized financial institutions. And all of this has prompted President Biden to issue an executive order talking about the importance 
of securing our national agencies, government agencies, and those contractors that are working with them. And we know that whenever the federal government starts to observe new standards that are heightened to what we may already have in our industry, it closely follows what the federal agencies that regulate banks and credit unions and mortgage companies are going to expect from our financial institutions, especially as we handle a lot of sensitive customer information and data. So uh, we already know that New York has a very stringent cybersecurity framework. I'm not going to be surprised if this executive order leads the way for other states to go ahead and do the same or for finally for us to get some kind of federal framework that we can all observe. So just be on the lookout for what's going on in cyber risk. It's a time to be investing in understanding your risk and mitigating those areas where you know you could be prone to breaches, hacking, because it can be really expensive to pay these hackers off and then to reobtain access to your data, which you don't wanna do, it's highly disruptive. We're going to move on now to issues that are affecting depository institutions particularly. And we're going to go ahead and start with something that has been in the industry for many years and nobody really likes it. And that is the Durbin Amendment. Robert, take it away. That's right. Regulation II and the Durbin Amendment. Uh, so the FRB is proposing to revise Regulation II by restating the requirement that debit card issuers have to enable at least two unaffiliated payment networks for card not present debit transactions. A card not, de card not present debit transaction is basically like an internet payment, any sort of transaction where uh, the physical card isn't needed. And so to be honest, from my reading of the regulation, it does seem like this requirement has generally always been in place, hence why the FRB is restating rather than amending regulation II with this rule. Uh, but it's never really been fully enforced in large part because in the past, technology simply hasn't made it possible for payment, multiple payment networks to be a possibility. Um, but you know, we're in 2021 now, and as technology has advanced, the FRB is starting to realize that that's not the case anymore, and that debit card issuers now have the technological means at hand to comply with this requirement. So in terms of impact, you know, there's really no beating around the bush that this is going to have implications on exclusivity agreements that financial institutions, that debit card issuers have with payment networks. Um, and you know, more likely than not, if the uh, rule is adopted as proposed, um, a lot of institutions are going to take a financial hit and there's just no getting around that really. But I would bet money that the civil monetary penalties and the reputational and compliance risks associated with non-compliance heavily outweigh those losses. Great, Robert. If you're interested in waging against Robert, go ahead and contact him for that. <laughs> Otherwise, we're going to go ahead and move on to bank uh, issues. And I know that the OCC has been especially busy during the last six months and in month of May was no exception. So Robert, what's going on down with the OCC? Yeah, so the uh, OCC has decided to reconsider its June 2020 Community Reinvestment Act rule uh, under the new acting comptroller, Michael Sue, who comes in with a ton of experience, having previously worked at the FRB, the IMF, the, F the SEC, and the Treasury. 
Uh, so what does it mean? You know, it means that the band may be getting back together. Just as a refresher, the OCC last year split from the FRB and the FDIC in attempting to modernize the Community Reinvestment Act. The OCC ended up publishing its final rule while the FRB and the FDIC are still sitting on their proposal. And the OCC justified that split based on the fact that it does supervise the largest banks in the US and that does present a separate set of priorities and issues. Um, and you know whether the split was actually a political move as President Trump left office or as uh, prior comptroller Joseph Odding stepped down, you know, it's a question and one that we'll probably never get an answer to, uh, but a lot of people, including most of the trade associations, believe that the OCC's rule was hastily pushed through and that as a result, um, a lot of institutions will try to take advantage of either the OCCs or the FRB and FDICs by changing their charter type. Um, and, you know, in my opinion, that's just not really what we want to see. Regulation in the financial sphere should be largely based on the type of operations by the institution, not simply whatever titles attached to the institution's charter. Um, but like I said, the OCC is going to reconsider their June 2020 CRA rule. And along with that, for institutions, an important note is that they also said that they won't object to the suspension of um, development and implementation of systems to incorporate the June 2020 rule. Um, and then also along with that, the OCC is also not planning on finalizing their December 4th, 2020 rule, um, which you know goes hand in hand um, and is trying to determine the CRA evaluation measures, um, the retail lending threshold tests, and the community development minimums. So like I said, you know, we'll see if the OCC, the FRB, and the FDIC do a Community Reinvestment Act reunion tour this fall, um, but this is certainly an important issue. Uh, and like I stated earlier, COVID-19 has really had an impact on a lot of the low and moderate income communities. Um, and so we definitely need to see a rule in place that will give the most assistance to those borrowers. Great. Thank you, Robert. And hopefully they won't have to postpone that tour thanks to COVID. So <laughs> hopefully not. All right. So the OCC is not done yet. You did mention, Robert, that they hastily pushed a couple of rules before their director stepped down. And Shelby, I know that the OCC's true true rule, true lender rule has also undergone some changes and modifications and potential complete scrapping. Yeah, the OCC's true lender rule has become newsworthy recently. Um, just as a reminder, what it is, it's a test to determine when a bank is considered the true lender and a loan that's made uh, in partnership with a non-bank lender. It's been somewhat controversial all around. Um, the Senate actually voted to overturn the true lender rule. They did so under the Congressional Review Act, um, which means that if the House votes it down as well, this type of rule will never be allowed again. Um, you've got the trade associations feeling different ways. Of course, uh, credit unions argue this puts them on a more level playing field. The ABA is disappointed with the Senate's action, uh, mainly because doing so under the Congressional Review Act, keeping it away entirely um, does not allow for any improvement or changes to the rule. Um, and I think bankers want to see it 
stay in some form. So that will be another another one to watch out for. Um, but it looks like it's going away. Thank you, Shelby. All right. So the FDIC is also doing some stuff at the moment. They just recently issued a request for information from financial institutions and the industry on digital assets. As you know, as we all have heard of cryptocurrencies going around and the utilization of these is spreading quite quickly. I have seen really large fintechs out there like Venmo. They are now starting to play in the crypto space. So of course it makes sense for our regulators to follow and try to understand these methodologies, these currencies to see how they're going to be regulating them. Let's just hope that they spend a lot of time figuring out the digital assets before they start issuing any rules. So, but on that note, if you are a practitioner or your bank is interested in playing in that space, maybe issuing or exchanging or serving as a platform for cryptocurrencies or digital assets, you're definitely gonna wanna take a look at this RFI, which is due July 16. And the important thing to note here is there's a question about compliance and risk management that I think a lot of you out there are really equipped to answer. And it's all about, are we currently prepared on the current and existing compliance and risk frameworks to deal with digital assets? If not, what do you recommend? So go ahead and take a look at those questions and submit your comments to the right agency. Um, and that does it for the financial institution banking space. We're going to move on to credit unions, starting with the RBC proposal. Robert, what does RBC stand for? And the, what is this new proposal? RBC stands for risk-based capital. Um, and, you know, right now, 2022 may seem a ways away, but it'll be here before you know it. And the risk-based capital rule is actually set to go into effect on January 1st, 2022. As a reminder, the rule was set to be effective in January, on January 1st of 2019, but it's been pushed back multiple times. Um, and then in March, the NCUA actually issued an advance notice of proposed rulemaking to simplify their 2015 uh, RBC rule. And so that uh, ANPR, that advance notice of proposed rulemaking, does offer two approaches. Um, they didn't go into too much detail on the specifics but one of which does still utilize the 2015 rule with an additional um, exit strategy or an additional step for uh, complex credit unions similar to the community bank leverage ratio in place for banks. And then the other one is more of a risk-based approach um, that deals with weighted risks for assets um, that may have an additional capital buffer needed. Um, but ultimately, you know, like I said, the NPR, the advanced notice of proposed rulemaking came out in March. Other than that, you know, we're kind of in a gray area because like I said, 2022 is coming up fast. Uh, credit unions, I think definitely need more clarity. Uh, capital is a highly complex issue. Lots of strategic planning involved, lots of financial expertise. Um, you know, so I would definitely expect the NCUA to give us something more concrete here in the next few months especially because it's basically been radio silence um, since March. Awesome. So credit unions, be on the lookout for that. Absolutely. And like you said, Robert, this is a lot of planning that needs to go around it. So it's, it's a little unfortunate that we keep playing this game of cat and mouse type of thing. Or Is it coming? Is it now? Are we going to do this or not? So 
Anyways, for mortgage companies, we're going to switch to a topic that is usually not associated with mortgage companies a, a whole lot, and that is elder abuse. So Shelby, what's going on with elder abuse on the state side? States are, are paying attention to this topic. Elder abuse is, is always kind of a big deal. And like you said, not usually associated with mortgage companies, but the state of Maryland um, has had some growing concerns about financial exploitation um, of vulnerable adults in real estate transactions. And so recently passed uh, the Maryland Statute Against Financial Exploitation, shortened to SAFE Act, although not the SAFE Act we're, we're used to with mortgage licensing. Um, and it creates a cause of action for victims of financial exploitation. The key here for you as a mortgage company, just to note, banks and credit unions are exempt from these regulations, but for you mortgage companies who, who are subject to it, um, huge financial damages attached uh, to these causes of action. So you're going to want to take some time and make sure that you are prepared to comply with this act. It takes effect on October 1st. Um, it's a good time to update your policies, train your employees on elder abuse. Wonderful. I, I always love when agencies start utilizing an acronym that we all know so well, like CRA, you were mentioning it, the SAFE Act, and they use it for something else now. It's always so confusing and fun, but Thank you for joining us. That does it for our June NCAST. If you have any questions on the topics we cover, go ahead and check out your NCOMPLY where you'll find news, guidance, regulatory updates on all the topics we covered today. Thank you for joining us and we'll be back with you next month. That wraps up this month's NCAST regulatory brief, talking with our compliance experts about the latest regulatory changes you need to be aware of. If you liked what you heard, please leave us a review. And if you're not subscribed yet, we invite you to do so on your favorite podcast platform. Thanks for listening.